every Wednesday, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. A show about endurance, human performance, and what it really means to feel alive and present. Presented to you by Javier Pineda. Do one thing every day. It doesn't have to be a big thing, but that scares you, that makes you nervous, that is potentially embarrassing. Because if you do those small things every day, when the big disasters in life hit you, and they hit all of us, you know, we lose our job, we have a chronic illness, somebody close to us dies, you'll be so much more resilient to handle those things. And welcome to another episode of the Endurance Cartel podcast. The podcast that gives you everything that you want to know on endurance, motivation, inspiration, life in general. Life is all about endurance. I have the privilege today of having motivational speaker and author Terry Tucker. Terry, I mean, man, if I don't press record, we do a whole podcast. And uh, man, knowing how clumsy I am sometimes, I, <laughs> I would have never pressed record and this thing would have gone blank in deaf ears. But you were telling me about how you came about. And it's, you know, I'm in the process of reading your book. I'm inspired by your book. And it's, it's one of those things that it's one of those books that you don't just read. You just got to go back and, and look at things. Cause I feel that that's the kind of books that the words kind of change every single time that you read them, every chapter you have on your book, sustainable excellence. You have a list of 10. And I love the fact that you mentioned David Letterman as uh, the top 10, top 10 lists. So you were telling me a bit about how you came about, you know, and how you grew up in uh, South Chicago, correct? Correct. So the southern part of Chicago. And um, you have your whole family that's been in the basketball uh, game. You guys are, I wouldn't say giants, but I mean, you're close to being giants. <laughs> Except, but you're the biggest giant of all is just your mom, 5'8". Mom was. Mom, mom really was. The, the, you know, I mean, it didn't matter how big, tall, strong we were. You know, I've got, we're, I'm 6'8", I've got a brother 6'7", a brother 6'6", six, six, and my dad was 6'5". And as I was, we were talking earlier, you know, I always joke that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, not a prayer chance you're going to say anything that was going on. But absolutely, our, our five foot eight inch mother was the boss. And I really think my parents showed us the value and the importance of family. You know, uh, my, my parents did what I used to call divide and conquer parenting, where they would, you know, Terry's got a game over here on this day, and, you know, Larry's got a game over here on this day. So, you know, mom's going to this game, dad's going to this game. And we were always running in a million different directions, but we were always there to support and care for each other and love each other. And I really feel incredibly fortunate to have the kind of upbringing that I've had, you know, my story is not the, you know, my dad was an alcoholic and he beat my mother. That was exactly the opposite. My dad loved his family and, and family was incredibly important. And I think that's one of the biggest things that my parents showed us was, was the value of family. In your book, you mentioned a lot of things in the sense of wanting to uh, go into the law, into the kind of like the family business, which is, was uh, law enforcement. Your grandpa was a law enforcement, and uh, apparently it was your father that saw your grandpa kind of get shot, is that, if I'm not mistaken? And this is why he just did not want you to go in that business? Sort of. My grandfather was a, a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954 and was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun, taking a, a murder suspect, a homicide suspect, back to the lockup. And my dad always remembered, my dad was an infant at the time that it happened, but he always remembered the stories that my grandmother told of that knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, grab your son and come with us. Your husband's been shot. And I mean, let's be honest, you know, trauma medicine in 1933 was a whole lot different than a trauma medicine is, is today. So when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my father was absolutely not. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, you know, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. But that's what my dad wanted me to do. That wasn't what I felt my purpose 
and my passion was. And so I had a choice. When I graduated from college, my father was dying of cancer. And I could have said, sorry, dad, I'm going to go blaze my own trail and do my own thing. Or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do. And so if you look at my resume, my first two jobs are in basically the corporate life. I was in the marketing department of Wendy's, the hamburger chain, in their corporate headquarters. And then I was a hospital administrator. I sort of joke, I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away. And then I followed my own dreams and I got into law enforcement. I could strongly relate to that because I also went to university and I also studied business administration in Boston. And you went to BU. We were in the same city studying the same stuff. I hated it. I hated it, but I, then again, I did not know what to study. I did not know anything else, but everybody was going in the same direction, I guess. And this is what I guess my parents wanted me to study. But my true passion was in the fitness industry. And it's the stereotype of the fitness uh, trainer is ah, it doesn't can't use the brains or can't. It's only they're only there to count and whatnot. But I can strongly relate to what you were saying in the sense of not wanting to, being very uh, kind of uh, afraid, basically, of taking that leap into into the law enforcement. But you did, and you actually did, you were in the SWAT, SWAT team, correct? I was. I was a hostage negotiator. Imagine that. That's one of the biggest questions I've had for you in the sense of, you must have Plenty, because I've seen so many movies on how the hostage negotiator, the psychology, the reverse psychology. I mean, it's all a mind game, you know, and tell us a little bit about that time in, in the in the SWAT. Sure. So for, for those of us or for those of your audience who don't, don't understand kind of how SWAT is set up, it's it's usually divided into two groups. One are the the tactical team and, the, and those are the men and women with with all the neat toys and the guns and, and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the negotiators. And if the negotiators do their, their job right, then then all the people on the tactical side don't get to use all their toys and things like that. So it, it was it was a tremendous opportunity for me. And, and some of the things that are important in what we did are important in any kind of a relationship. You know, whether it's a parent or a child or a husband and wife or a boss or a subordinate, the overarching theme in SWAT for us as negotiators was trust. We had to develop trust with this individual who we knew nothing about and who was obviously, let's face it, if your house is surrounded by the police and you're talking to me, you're probably having the worst day of your life. And so, you know, people used to always tell us, you know, when we got somebody out, a great job, you talked somebody out. What we really did was listen people out. And what if you think about kind of what we did, we've all played at the park with a, a teeter-totter or a seesaw. And when we started to negotiate, the person we're negotiating with, their emotional end is way up in the air and their rational, rational end, rational brain is way down on the ground. And over a period of time, sometimes many hours of us asking them open-ended questions, you know, why are we here? What's going on? How can we resolve this? And things like that. We're getting that person to talk and burn off a lot of that emotional energy. And over time, hopefully that teeter-totter, that seesaw comes to an equilibrium. And then even given more time, you get to a point where the person's rational brain is kind of up in the air and their emotional brain is down on the ground because we all make better decisions for ourselves based on our rational brain versus our emotional brain. So we're asking you open-ended questions. We're asking you how and what questions. And what that is doing is getting you as the hostage taker or the barricaded person to help me get you out. And you don't even realize that. You don't even realize you're helping me or assisting me in getting you out because I'm now vesting you in the process. You know, what do you think we could do to solve this problem? Well, if you answer that question, you're now vested in this. You're now coming up with solutions on how we can get this problem solved and how we can get you out safely. So listening was a big part of that. I even devoted a chapter in the book to it. And everybody's like, well, listening, it's pretty easy. It's not. I mean, we all listen to respond. Like, you know, Javier, hurry up, say what you're going to say, because I want to get my two cents in versus Oh, okay, Javier, I understand what you're, or I, I hear what you're saying. 
I may not agree with you. Or I may I may agree with you, but help me to understand where you're coming from. And over time, we're developing trust because at the beginning, I'm not going to say to you, hey, Javier, I need you to come out now. That, that's We haven't developed that relationship yet. We haven't developed that trust yet. And until we do that, there's no way you're going to come out. And it's not uncommon in a negotiation to spend several hours kind of over here talking about a problem when the real issue of why we're there is over here, but you don't trust me enough to allow me to get to a point where we can discuss that sort of man-to-man or woman, whatever it ends up being. And, and, I'll, and I'll end with this. The big part that we would have to do is to be comfortable with silence. So when you and I are talking, and if I stop talking and you stop talking, we get that uncomfortable silence and people don't like that. And so we had to be good about not trying to fill that silence, but allowing that individual to get uncomfortable with it and start talking again. And again, basically building on that and taking that emotional energy away to the point where now all of a sudden we've got trust. You're a little more calm. You're using your rational brain. And the last thing I'll say about this is we would ask you a question. You would give us an answer. We would parrot that answer back to you and attach an emotion to it. And this was where it really got important because, Javier, if you and I are talking and you you are ranting and raving and yelling and screaming, and I say something like, well, Javier, you seem to be a little upset. I have totally missed what you are. You're pissed as hell. And, and, and I have to get down in the weeds with you. I have to get down in the mud with you and really get to that point where you and I are kind of connecting on that level. And that's why hostage negotiation, at least from our point, was, was such an exhausting type of job. In your book, you mentioned that you were a coach as well and you coached girls basketball in college. And you mentioned also that you would speak to specifically remember one that did not want to go into the game because of a specific, she was afraid of messing up, right? She wanted to be perfect. Somehow you told her that it, the team relied on her to go in, but she was just afraid of messing up for the whole team. That kind of translated over for you, just that listening ability, that reading of people and getting the best out of them in order for them to come into play and basically in in SWAT? I mean, is, is there a specific situation when there was that feeling of that it would last, like it lasted like a long hours and you were like, man, I mean, I can't get through this person. I mean, this person is just really, it's just killing me right now to to actually talk to this person. Has there Was there ever a point that you just lost your cool or anything? I, I never lost my cool. We were trained not to do that. We, we were trained to try to Yes, I have to get emotional. Yes, I have to identify the emotion that you're displaying, but I'm not, I, I'm the one in charge, despite what you think. I am, I'm still the one in charge. You're the one who's ultimately going to make the decision. And about 90% of the time, we were successful at getting the person out safely. And, you know, whether we took them to jail or whether it was we took them to the hospital for mental health treatment, whatever it ended up being on that situation. But we, I never lost my cool, but there were times where certainly people were trying to push your buttons. I, I remember one time we were negotiating with a 15-year-old boy who had barricaded himself in a house with a gun, and we had done everything we could think of to, to get this kid out, and he would not budge. And so we kind of called a timeout. We're like, look, I'll, I'll call you back. And he was fine with that. And so we all got together and we started talking. We started brainstorming, like, what, what can we do? What haven't we done? And, we're, and somebody said, he's 15 years old. He's a kid. Let's scare him. And so what we decided to do was we were going to have the tactical team break a window and we were going to throw in a, a flashbang device that basically, it, it's sometimes they're called a flashbang grenade. They don't explode like a grenade and go all over the place. But they basically produce a very loud sound and a very bright light. So we thought, let's try that. Let's try and scare him and see if he'll come out there. And literally, the, the tactical team broke the window, threw the device in, it, it made the bang, and it made the light. Within 10 minutes, he was out. 
So, you know, sometimes you got to be a parent. And that's what we were trying to do. It's like, look, we've tried all this, you know, how we're, you know, the psychological part of it. Well, maybe we need to get down sort of in the grassroots level and say, all right, we need to be like your parent. You know, we're, we're going to be a parent here and we're going to scare you. And, and that's exactly what we did. And he came out. So, yeah, no incident is the same. No incident, you know, is exactly like the one before. And one of the other things, and I talked about trust. One of the other things we did is we never lied to people. People would say to us, hey, I'll come out. I'll put the gun down. I'll let the hostage go. But you got to promise me I'm not going to go to jail. And we would have to say, I'm sorry, when you come out, you are going to go to jail. And then we would try to deflect the conversation to something that was more positive. And like I said, in the end, it was up to the person how this was going to end. And like I said, 90% of the time we got the people out, 10% of the time the person decided, you know what, I'm not going back to jail or I, I you know, I know I'm going to go to prison when, when I, when I come out. So I'm not going to do that. And they chose to end their life. And while that was always tragic, I don't mean to sound cruel about this, but I never lost any sleep over it because I knew I did the very best I could to get the person out. I had great training. I did everything I could to end this successfully. But at the end of the day, if you're barricaded with a gun, it's going to be your decision how this is going to end. Wow. Did your boss say, Terry, you're going to be the negotiator or, or you were like, you know what? Hey, boss, I'm the, I want to train to be a negotiator because I feel like I got that speaking ability. Yeah, I, I actually, there was an opening for the negotiators and I put in for it with a bunch of other people. They took, I believe, two or three openings. So they took two or three officers. I put in for it. I had to do a physical fitness test, run so much, do so many push-ups, sit-ups. Uh, I had to meet with the psychologist, the police psychologist. I had to do a bunch of written tests. The the powers that be went and talked to my former bosses and stuff like that. Does he have the right temperament? Do you think he can be successful in this type of a job? So you had to do all that. And then the team, and it's a team. It's just not one person. It's a team that decides. And if one person on the team says, uh, I don't like Terry Tucker, I don't think he's going to be good, then I don't get on. It's a unanimous decision. It's mm -hmm. unanimous. Do we want this this person on? And when I was on, you know, there were other openings, and people came up, and there were sometimes we we're like, no, don't want this person. Don't think he has the right temperament for it, and so they were not uh, allowed to be part of the team. So it's definitely a team a team kind of thing. And and the way it works is there's a primary negotiator. Say that's me. I'm talking to the person. Well, there's another negotiator sitting right next to me, listening to everything that's going on. And then there are three or four, maybe even five negotiators doing what I used to call working the crowd. And they're, you know, why are we here? What happened? And so as a primary, you may get a note from your secondary that says, don't ask about his mother. Because what the people in the crowd found out was he had a big fight with his mother and he barricaded himself in the house with a gun. So you might get a note and say, don't talk about his mother. So it's very much a team effort to get somebody out successfully. Navy SEALs, I know for a fact that they change and rotate every two years just so they won't get complacent. In your case, as you start moving up or growing in, your, in the field, how did you start getting into motivational speaking and what in... Did this contribute to a lot of the things for people to just talking to you? I get that that good positive vibration that you send out, and uh, it's innate, it's natural, it's in you. You know how to speak to people. When did it, you start saying, "Okay, you know what? I feel that more and more people need to hear my message." At what point did you start seeing that you can be an author as well as a motivational speaker, and based on that incredible resume that you have being on the SWAT team, being a coach as well from girls uh, college basketball. Tell me about it. Yeah, that, it was actually people that were saying to me, you should tell your story. And, and, and the other part of that, the story is for the last 10 years, I've been dealing with a, a rare form of cancer that has seen me spend five years on a drug that gave me severe flu-like symptoms every week after I took an injection of this drug. And, and like I said, I was on that drug for five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years as a result of that drug. And that was not a cure for my cancer. That was just to buy time to give me more opportunities for additional therapies to be developed. 2018, I had my left 
foot amputated because of the cancer. 2020, uh, right in the middle of the pandemic, I had my left leg amputated above the knee and I found out I had tumors in my lungs, which I'm still being treated for every three weeks. So people hear my story and they're like, you, you, should, you should talk about it. You should tell people. And I was really hesitant to do that because I don't, I don't think I have all the answers. I think I have some answers that have worked for me, but I, I'm uncomfortable trying to say, hey, you know, if you do this, you're going to get these results. I, I don't know if you're going to get these results. I can tell you what has worked for me and maybe you could apply those things in your life. So 2019, I made the the brilliant business decision to start a motivational speaking business right in the middle of the pandemic. All of a sudden, everything dries up. You know, there's no, no opportunities. Nobody's even doing anything remote at the time. So I, like many businesses, had to decide how I was going to sort of change and morph and, and do, do it a different way. And that was podcast. Somebody reached out to me and said, would you like to be a guest on my podcast? And Javier, I, I kid you not, my response was, what's a podcast? I had no idea what a podcast was at that time. And so I remember when I first started out, you know, I had the camera here and I, I had notes all around my camera, you know, and somebody would ask me a question. I would be like, well, the answer to that is, and I would read what I had written. And it, it was, I was terrible. I was absolutely horrible when I first started out. And it, it, kind of a funny story, about a month ago, I was doing a podcast with a, a former NFL lineman. This guy is like six foot six, 300 pounds, played in the National Football League for several different teams. And afterwards, we were talking and he said, you know, Terry, when I first started this podcast, I was scared to death. I'm like, what do you mean you were scared to death? You're huge. I, I mean, how could you possibly not have all this confidence? He said, no. He said, I didn't know if anybody would listen to me. I didn't know if anybody would take me seriously. And so we started to commiserate about, yeah, I felt the same way when I started being a guest on podcast. <laughs> and it, it was just kind of funny, but you realize that we're all just human and we're all just doing the best we can. And so I started, I started to do more podcasts and I've been incredibly fortunate, you know, to have been a, a guest on well over 500 different podcasts all around the world, all different continents and things like that. And so that was kind of my, what got me into to doing podcasts. And then in, I don't know, probably 2020, people started to suggest you ought to write a book, you ought to write a book. And I was like, eh, I don't really think I should write a book. And I, I sort of, I sort of, there's a, a great joke. It goes like this. It said, you know, when we talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to us, it's called schizophrenia. So God never told me to write a book <laughs> by any means. But I think what God does is he puts people in your path and who start making the same suggestion. And I think I'm smart enough to realize that maybe I had to buck up and pay attention when people, you know, start making that suggestion. And so I'd had a young man reach out to me from college and ask me what I thought were the most important things he should learn to not just be successful in his job or in business, but to be successful in life overall. And I didn't want to give him that, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. I wanted to see if I could go deeper with him. So I, I spent some time and I started writing notes and eventually I had these, these 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to him. And then I stepped back and I was like, well, you know, I got a life story that fits underneath that principle, or I know somebody whose life emulates this principle. So literally during the period of time after I had my leg amputated while I was healing, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories. You're reading the book. They're real stories about real people. And that's how sustainable excellence, the 10 principles to leading your uncommon and extraordinary life came to be. It broke my heart when I was reading in your book that you will be telling your wife just to end your life because you were under so much brutal pain because of the medications you were receiving. Can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. You can ask me anything you want. There's nothing off. Uh, yeah, because I mean, it's, I feel it's a very sensitive uh, subject in the sense of you wanting just to call it quits. Just the, the pain, I cannot even imagine or fathom the amount of pain that you must have been in first to tell your wife, just end me. Yeah, it, it was. There, there were several times I, when I was on that drug that I mentioned, it was called interferon. And, and I took a weekly injection. I used to take the injection on Saturday night. And so 
Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, I basically had the flu. I mean, you know, I was nauseous. I was thrown up. I ate that headache, had a fever. And, and I did that every week for five years. And I only missed one injection. And that was when I took our daughter on a college visit. And I remember just, just asking God to die. I, I was so sick of being sick that I was just done. I, I was over. I was like, I, I can't, I can't keep doing this. And I've always had a very strong faith. And obviously God didn't take me out of my misery, but I believe what he did was give me, give me the courage, give me the, the resolve to continue to go on. At that point in my life, it was literally winning the day for me meant winning five minutes. And, and you know, it, sometimes winning the day meant getting out of bed and getting to the couch where I was going to spend the rest of the day. And, and I know that doesn't sound real sexy or anything like that, but that was that was winning the day. That was embracing the suck that I was having to deal with. That was saying, you know what? I don't like these cards that I've been dealt, but I'm going to have to play them to the best of my ability. But yes, there was a time when I was in the emergency room, I had a blood clot in my lung and fluid around the sack of my heart. I, I felt like I was having a heart attack. And I remember looking at my wife and just saying, please just let me go. Just let, let me die. And I think how selfish that was of me at that point in my time, in my life that, you know, why was it all about me? I mean, she didn't have any say in this, you know, our daughter didn't have any say in this. Why was it all about me? And it, it just kind of woke me up and, and was like, no, this isn't about me. And you mentioned the Navy SEALs earlier. And I, my wife actually works with a young man who was a former SEAL. And he calls me on my off weeks when I'm not in treatment. And, and we talk about different things. He just calls to check up on me. He's just a great guy. And sometimes we talk about what the SEALs call their 40% rule, which basically says that if, if you're done, if you're at the end of your rope, if you can't go on, you're only at 40% of your maximum. And you still have another 60% left in reserve to give to yourself. So I've remembered that. I, I, I draw on that a lot because as I continue to go through treatment, I mean, you're looking at me right now. There's no S on my chest. I don't wear a cape. I mean, I, I have bad days. I cry. I, I feel sorry for myself. But I always remember that I need to keep moving forward. And as long as I do that, then I, there's still hope in my life. Wow. Hey, I take my hats off to you. I mean, much, much respect. I have three questions for you based on everything that you have said. Question number one is basically a moment when endurance played a role in making you superhuman, even though you say you had no S in your in the front. But what kept you going? Because endurance is, I feel it, it's like saying sustainability or just ongoing. What kept you going? What kept you alive? What kept you saying, it's like, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to do the best I freaking can? I, I think a couple things. I think, first off, what I learned from playing team sports, from playing basketball. You know, I started playing basketball when I was nine years old and played all the way up till I graduated from college till I was 21. And I think one of the things that team sports taught me, and, it, and for me, it was sports. I don't think it has to be sports. I think it can be any team, you know, that you're on, whether it's your family, the people you work with, you know, the people at the gym, whatever it ends up being. But one of the things that team sports taught me was the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down and your fans down. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. And so that's a that's one of the things that keeps me going. And the other thing that, that keeps me going is what I call my three F's, which are faith, family, and friends. I, I've talked a little bit about my faith. Uh, my family is is my wife and my daughter, and it's just the three of us. And I, I, my brothers are still alive, and my mother's actually still alive. And, and I remember when I had my leg amputated, my doctor wanted to start me on chemotherapy. And I, I looked at him, and I was like, is it going to save my life? And he was like, mm-hmm. Probably not, but it might buy you some more time. Now, I was eight years into this fight, and I said, you know, if the outcome's going to be the same, I don't think I want to do this, but I'll go home and talk to my family. And so 
So I go home and I start telling my wife and daughter about what the doctor wants to do. And my daughter, she, she's home from college at the time. She, she's like, all right, we need a family meeting. I'm like, family meeting, there's three of us. You know, it's not like we got a board here or something like that. You know, so we end up sitting around the kitchen table and individually talking about how we feel about me having chemotherapy. And then my daughter's like, all right, let's take a vote. How many people want dad to have chemotherapy? And my wife and daughter raised their hand. I'm like, wait a minute. Am I getting outvoted for something that I don't want to do? But I remembered back when I was in the police academy, our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph of the people we love the most to class. And as we were learning to defend ourselves, we were to look at that photograph because he reasoned you will fight harder for the people you love than you will fight for yourself. So I took chemotherapy, not because I wanted to, because my wife and daughter wanted me to. And in hindsight, it was the right decision. It, it was a bridge that got me to the drug that I'm on now. And then lastly, the, the last F is, is friends. And I think you really find out who your true friends are when you have some kind of a, a big disaster in your life. You know, you get a terminal or a chronic illness or somebody close to you dies. You really find out who's in that foxhole with you when you're kind of at the lowest point in your life. And it's amazing that you remember every detail of who is with you at those very moments. You even remember what clothes they were wearing, even what perfume or cologne those per those people are wearing. It's that's that's how important uh, in my experience in my tough times it has been because I remember vividly what they were wearing wh at what time because that's how much Im impact it did and it still does. And just remembering that on when uh, those people around you, they got your back. Yeah, you can get a whiff of that cologne somewhere, yeah, on somebody else. And it's like, it brings you back to that whole state. Or, you know, I, I, I see that. When I tell you that story, I see that, I see that in my mind. I see us sitting around the kitchen table and things like that. You're absolutely right. So your family is your team from what I, I get on, uh, on all this. They, you guys have a nice democracy at home, I see. Yeah, I, it's more of an authoritarian dictatorship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My second question for you is, who inspired you just to go that extra mile in all this journey that you've gone so far? I would have to say, I'd have to go back to my parents. I told you that my dad was dying of cancer when I got out of college. Well, my youngest brother was in high school. He was a senior in high school and he was on the basketball team. And I remember, you know, I, I had my own job. I was working at Wendy's and I was living at home. And I remember telling my dad one night, my brother had a basketball game. I said, dad, I'm not going to the game. I'm going to go work out. I haven't, haven't worked out in a few days and I, I'm feeling the need to work out. My dad's like, no, you're not. I'm like, wait a minute, I, I, I'm a grown man. I've got a college degree. I've got a job. What do you mean? No, I'm not. He said, no, you don't understand. Your brother needs you right now. You know, his father's dying. I am dying. Your brother needs you to be at the game. And my dad was absolutely right. I was just trying to, you know, puff out my chest and, you know, kind of have a little bit of independence. And, 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 you know, dad was like, kind of put it in perspective. No, we've always been about family. We've always been about loving each other, caring about each other, supporting each other. And by God, your brother needs you right now. You're not going to work out. You're going to your brother's game. And like I said, my dad was right. I ended up going to my brother's game. I found another time to go and work out. So it, it's really my parents that I think set the foundation, set the groundwork for, for the kind of person that I think my brothers and I, we, we all turned out pretty decent, I think. At least I think we did. You mentioned a lot of instances in your book where call it divine interference or just an angel coming down to rescue. I don't want to sound religious or anything, but there's always that moment that God is doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. And you mentioned the part that you were ready to quit your basketball, your basketball uh, team. And it just so happened that you wanted to go tell your coach, but you decided to go and get to check your mailbox. And in that mailbox was a letter from your dad. And that, I'm going to let you say what that letter said. But wow, I mean, if, if that's not uh, some wise words of advice coming from your dad, my God, I mean, talk about just the right words for the right time, right? Yeah, the right words for the, for the right time at the right time. And, and you're absolutely right. I had, I had gotten a full scholarship to play NCAA Division I college basketball. 
Uh, I was at, you know, the, the thing about the school that I attended was it was a military school. So in addition to having to deal with the academics and the basketball, I also had to deal with the military. And I had had three knee surgeries in high school. So I was just lucky to be playing on a Division One program. And I, I was so, one, I was incredibly immature. I, I had not really grown up. And I'd never been away from home. You know, I was a thousand miles from home. I, I was so in my head at that point in time. I, w- I was so in my way at that time that I was like, I'm done. I'm going to quit. I'm like, wait a minute. I, I had never quit anything in my life. I had fought through three knee surgeries to come back and play basketball. And I was literally walking over to tell the coaches that I was quitting, that I was going to leave. I had no backup plan. I had no idea what I was going to do once I left. But as you said, I decided, well, maybe I got some mail. Maybe my girlfriend sent me a letter or something like that. And, you know, it made me feel better. Or something. So I, I went and checked my mailbox. Here's this letter from my dad, seven page handwritten letter from my father. I take that letter. I go up into the, to the, the rafters of the, the field house where literally the coach's office is like 50 feet away. Tear open the letter, start reading it. And basically my dad's like, you know what? I am proud of you. I am proud that you've overcome your your knee situation. I'm proud that you worked hard enough to get a scholarship to college. And and he just goes on and tells me how much he loves me and how proud he is of me. And then he kind of hits me with the the importance of the letter, which is basically pull your head out of your butt. I mean, you, you have a full scholarship to college. And, you know, you're going to walk out of here debt-free with a degree if you just stick it out. Not only did he tell me that, but he's like, I know you can. He's like, you are so in your head right now that you have called home six times. And the last six times, you have not asked one thing about anybody here. How's your mom doing? How are your grandmothers doing? How are your brothers? How's your girlfriend? You are so focused on you. And basically he said, pull your head out of your butt get out of your way. I know you can do this, but it's your choice, whatever you want to do. And I am literally crying, sobbing, reading this letter. I'm like, okay, there's nobody around. Thank God, you know? (laughs) And so I just literally pulled the handkerchief out of my pocket, wiped my eyes, put the letter in my pocket and said, you know what? I'm going to make this work. I'm going to make this happen. And that's how close I came to giving up a full scholarship, which I'm sure would have entirely changed my life if I if I had quit. Let me ask you something, Terry. And you mentioned your knees, your knee situations again. When you got your leg amputated, what was your, your first thought? What was your, you saw that, that there was only one leg, the other leg is missing. What was your first thought going through your head? That I was alone. I, I mean, the, the, the scary thing about having my leg amputated is I had it amputated during COVID. The way it worked was my wife literally dropped me off at the hospital entrance. I was put on in a wheelchair. I was wheeled to the pre-op area, which is a bunch of cubicles that should have patients in every single cubicle waiting for surgery. I was the only patient that day. My doctor had to get special permission to actually do the surgery because my Basically, my leg was broken. The tumor had grown large enough that it, it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And I, there was it wasn't like you could put it in a cast and it was going to heal. I, it was loaded with cancer. So I, I had no choice but to have it done. But I remember just being so alone. My wife couldn't even be with me. And here I was going to have my leg amputated. And, you know, and it was above the knee. I mean, I've got a little bit of thigh left, but for the most part, I have a non-functioning leg. So I remember just feeling incredibly alone and, you know, being wheeled into that that operating room. And then, like you say, waking up and I should have been in the hospital for a week to learn how to basically live, how to get on a toilet, how to get, take a shower, how to, you know, get around without a leg. And I was in the hospital for 48 hours because of COVID. I mean, my doctor was like, tell the therapist they need to teach you everything they possibly can in 48 hours because you're going home. We're getting you out of here so that you're not exposed to anybody. And it was it was a horrible time. I, I mean, I was I was scared. I, I, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I, I was I was scared to death. But I mean, what's what's the the definition of courage? It's it's not the absence of fear. It's 
facing up to your fears and working through it. And, and that's kind of what I felt I had to do. And you kept mentioning that in your book as well, that you got to just befriend almost your fears in order for that, for you to create a new you, a better you. And I'm paraphrasing big time here, but your words were just so much better than mine right now. What, what's the biggest obstacle you've encountered with just with one leg? A guy who's been so athletic, a guy who's been in the law enforcement, and now you got to just... Uh, fulfill your your duties in this in this lifetime with one leg what's been your biggest obstacle and that you've you're overcoming in a way that's a great question and i i had a nurse recently that takes care of me uh, during my my infusion treatments asked me what it was like you know to have your leg amputated to have your foot amputated first and and what i told her is that you know it certainly hasn't been easy. It's been two years since I've had my leg amputated. I'm still learning to walk with a prosthetic. I don't trust the prosthetic totally yet, so I'm not real good with it. Um, but what I told her was, cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my mind, it can't touch my heart, and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am. That's who you are, Javier. That's who everybody who's listening to us are. So we, we spend a lot of time on our bodies. And, and I, I know you're, you're big into fitness and I've, I've listened to several of your podcasts with your guests that are big into fitness and, and your body is incredibly important. But when I was growing up, there was a basketball coach at Indiana university by the name of Bobby Knight, probably one of the, one of the greatest college coaches of all times, got himself a little trouble here and there. But I used to have a friend that I played basketball with in college who went to Indiana, played for Knight won a national championship with him and then went on and played for the Detroit Pistons in the National Basketball Association, won a couple NBA titles with them as well. And I used to see, his name was Isaiah Thomas. I used to see Isaiah in the summer and we would talk about things. Said, you know, what, what's Knight like? He said, Knight's, Knight's a great coach. He cares about his players. But he said, Knight's got this saying that goes, mental is to physical as four is to one. So here's this great coach teaching, you know, elite athletes to use their bodies to be great basketball players on the court. But what he's really saying with that quote is that your mind or your mindset is four times more important than anything that your physical body is going to do. So, you know, I try to keep it in perspective. Now, you know, I, I don't work on my body as much. It's 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 much more difficult for me, especially with my my continued treatments and stuff like that. But I do work on my mind. I do work on my heart and I do work on my soul every single day. And I do that by doing things that are difficult. And, and I recommend to anybody that's listening to us, do one thing every day. It doesn't have to be a big thing, but that scares you, that makes you nervous, that is potentially embarrassing. Because if you do those small things every day, when the big disasters in life hit you, and they hit all of us, you know, we lose our job, we have a chronic illness, somebody close to us dies, you'll be so much more resilient to handle those things than as somebody who, oh my gosh, this is the first time I'm, I'm having to deal with being resilient and I don't know how to do it. Do one thing every day that makes you nervous, that scares you, that's potentially embarrassing. That's, that's beautiful, Terry. Does it bother you when people see you with a handicap, your ego? Like, it, does it get your ego? It, it, it doesn't. I mean, I've tried to find the humor in it. I remember when I had my leg amputated, I was uh, walking is kind of a, a, it's the only word that I can come up with. I was walking out of the hospital. I obviously was limping and stuff like that. There was a woman who was at the the entrance or the the doors of the hospital and she was staring and she, you know, and I was kind of looking around like, is she staring at me? And she apparently was because I was the only person walking towards her. And when I got right up next to her, I turned to her and I said, don't worry, it'll grow back. And I kept walking. And, and she, <laughs> you know, I, I turned around, I looked at her and she had this look on her face like, will it? Will it really? What is this guy like a salamander or something like that? You cut its tail off, it grows back. What's what's the deal here and stuff? So I mean, I've tried to find humor in in this entire uh, event. I, I don't try to take myself too seriously. Like I told you at the beginning, I don't have all the answers, but I'll tell you, humor has been a, a tremendous help for me. 
uh, every time I go into the infusion center, every time I get treated, I always have dad jokes for the nurses and they've come now to expect my stupid dad jokes, but at least it <laughs> lightens up the mood and, and, you know, and we don't have to deal with, you know, it's, it's not as dire watching me shake and throw up and all the kind of stuff that they have to, they have to watch me do every day. Well, kind of almost answered my third question because my third question was if there would be any piece of advice that you would just give our listeners in the terms of your experience if you've acquired so far you just humor is one of the biggest ones i try to go to because i tend to get very serious on myself it's only when i loosen up and just take don't take myself too seriously that i am not perfect i will never be perfect there's no such thing as perfection but you mentioned something very good that in your book also that at least let's strive to perfection. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I guess I, I'll tell you a quick story if, if we have time that... We have all the time you want, Terry. Well, thank you. It, it's the best advice. And I, I, I try to end podcasts with this because I think it's something that people can glean onto. I've always been a big fan of Westerns growing up. When I was young, my mom and dad used to let me stay up and watch Bonanza and Gunsmoke. And my favorite was Wild Wild West. 1993, the movie Tombstone came out. You may have seen it. It was Great a movie. huge, Great yeah, movie. huge blockbuster. Starred Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth. They're not made up characters just for the movie. Now, Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade. But pretty much Doc Holliday was a gunslinger and a card shark. And Wyatt Earp, almost his entire adult life, had been some form of a lawman. So these two men from entirely opposite backgrounds somehow come together and form this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc Holliday is dying at a hospital in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. The real Doc Holliday died in that uh, hospital, and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. And Wyatt, at this point in his life, is destitute. He has no money, he has no job, he has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc, and the two men pass the time that way. And in this almost last scene of the movie, the two men are talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, you know, when I was younger, I was in love with my cousin, but she joined a convent over the affair but she's all that I ever wanted. And then he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt kind of nonchalantly says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal, there's just life. And get on with living years. Javier, you and I know people, there's probably people out there listening to us that are sitting back and saying, well, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. Or when that occurs, I'll have a successful life. Or when this arises, I'll have a significant life. What I'd like to leave your audience with is this. Don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there. Find the reason you were put on the face of this earth. Use your unique gifts and talents and live that reason. Because if you do, at the end of your life, I'm going to promise you two things. Number one, you're going to be a whole lot happier. And number two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart. Amen to that. Wow. Terry, I cannot thank you enough, my friend. I have been beyond inspired in our conversation today. You, my friend, are a shining light. And since the moment we started saying, even the moment we started saying hello, I mean, I had this intuition that's like, man, this, this guy is just something else already. Because there's something about you that just makes it very easy. You're approachable. You, you talk from your heart. And it shows. It shows in in your book, Sustainable Excellence. It shows in your in how you've lived your life. And I cannot appreciate you enough for being on this podcast. Well, Javier, thanks for, for having me on. I, I always say it's nice people like you that allow me to come on and have a conversation with them. And and hopefully the people that listen to our conversation, we make a positive difference in their life. And if we do, for me, today's been a good day. Would you like to tell our, the audience more about your book, where they can get it? And uh, I think your, your, your social media handles, I think you're more on LinkedIn than you are on anything else. 
I, I am. Yeah. The, the book again is called Sustainable Excellence, The 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. It's available anywhere you can get a book online. You can get it at Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Apple iBooks. Uh, I have a, a blog that I do every day. I put up a thought for the day. And with that thought usually comes a question about how maybe you could apply that thought into your life. Uh, I have recommendations on the blog for books to read, other videos to watch. My social media links are on there. And you can also leave me a message or a note. If you've got a question or you just want to reach out to me, I, I respond to everybody that that re, that basically reaches out to me. So, And that is at motivationalcheck.com. Motivationalcheck.com. We'll put this on, our, on all the editing and everything so people can get a uh, good grasp of it. Any, any, uh, any coaching on your side for, for people that might need it? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I do it kind of on an individual basis. I recently started, um, I, I mean, it's very new, very much in its infancy, uh, a membership program off of sustainable excellence. People either had read the book or heard me speak or been on podcasts and they're like, you know, we'd, we'd like to go a little bit deeper into the book would you do a membership? And again, just like writing the book, I was like, nah, I don't think I want to do that. But again, enough people <laughs> reached out and I thought, well, I guess maybe that's God's way of saying, hey, you know, don't sit back on your laurels, get out there and do something with whatever time you've got left. So I've just started a membership. It's sustainableexcellencemembership.com if you want to go there and find out more information about it. So Terry, for our listeners that Want a quick summary of what we uh, we spoke on a lot of uh, topics, and it all comes down to facing your own demons, facing your own fears, and befriend them, and you will strive like none other. Terry has an amazing, amazing story. Started off in wanting to be in the law enforcement. Dad did not want to, and uh, just had to wait for dad to pass on. So he came uh, into a law enforcement and, and through law enforcement, he just found other attributes and other gifts that he had been given. And I feel that you've been given the gift of just that heart that you have, that, that you speak with. And um, so easy to get to people. Not a lot of people can have that gift of communicating, gift of just clarity with and give clarity to somebody else. And if I can summarize our interview with just clarity in your communication skills, that's one. Guys, thank you very much for being a listener. Please don't forget to support us through our Patreon and also subscribe to our podcast in anywhere you get your podcast, iTunes, Spotify. So with that, thank you so much. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you for listening to Endurance Cartel. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, subscribe to the podcast and give us a review wherever you get your podcast. Join our cartel by supporting us on Patreon and receive other perks. Hey, why not? Maybe even become a guest. Ah, I almost forgot. Join our website at endurancecartel.com. And if you like, leave us a message with a question or topic that interests you. And we may even feature it on our future episode. You can also find more information about our episodes by visiting our blog and subscribing to our newsletter. That's it for now. We'll see you next time. Same place, same vibes. Be good. Endurance Cartel.